And you're tuned in to 3RRRFM. The show is Uncommon Sense and I'm Amy Mullins and I'm so delighted now to have with me in the studio all the way from Britain, Owen Jones, who is a columnist for The Guardian and he's an author of many books, including Chavs, The Demonization of the Working Class and also another more recent book, The Establishment. So I welcome Owen now and thank you so much for coming in. Hey, it's Massive honour, honestly, big, big, big privilege to be here. Thank you for coming. And I know a lot of people here are big fans of your work, and certainly the things that you say can often reach further than Britain, uh, particularly when you're talking about Brexit. And I know that some people may be aware of your work from one of the videos that recently was quite popular and um, interesting. And that video, of course, was your panel interview on Sky when you were talking about uh, Theresa May's resignation as Prime Minister of Britain. And people were saying, oh, should we be upset um, or should we at least have sympathy or empathy for Theresa May, who uh, choked up at the end and had some uh, tears before she rushed back into number 10. And uh, you said some really important things, which I think struck a chord. And particularly when you were further prodded by that uh, journalist who said, well, can't you have a, a human response? And you said, my response is human. Could you share with us why you said what you said and why you think it really got so much attention or that people really responded to it? Because I know I certainly responded to it. Well, I I mean, I was asked, you know, if I had any sympathy for Theresa May and I said I had less than no sympathy for Theresa May. And uh, the reason for that was, uh, you know, I I, kind of get frustrated about the way uh, a politician like that resigns. It's almost like a royal death. Or I mean, it's bad enough when a politician dies and we're told we can't discuss their political record whilst all their supporters use their death, you know, like when Margaret Thatcher died, mm. and, uh, to go, you know, we will politicise her death if we support her and, uh, and basically use this as an opportunity to go on about how brilliant and wonderful her policies are. But if anyone who opposed her policies, it's morally indecent. How dare we? That's yes. bad enough. But when a prime minister is forced to resign because they are so catastrophic and then we're expected because she cried a bit when she spoke. You know, the only the only time Theresa May has ever publicly wept is over herself. She didn't, as I pointed out when I was asked, cry for those the Windrush Britons, these were black Britons who lived in Britain for decades, who, because of Theresa May's policies, were stripped of healthcare, kicked on the streets and even deported from the country. Again, whether it be the working class people who, who burned to death dozens of them in Grenfell Tower, uh, she didn't cry for them publicly. She didn't cry for all the disabled people who've had their benefits stripped off them because of her policies, the children at the moment, Britain being driven into poverty at the fastest rate since 1988. And I just think, you know, that, that's so that's when I when I was at when when I point all this out and I was, you know, can't you just respond on a human level? It is talking on a human level to talk about the consequences of policies on which have devastated lives. I mean, people's lives have been destroyed by a prime minister who, on their own terms, is the worst prime minister Britain has had since the 18th century when the American colonies declared independence, which was, you know, I mean, it's pretty pretty low bar, but she managed to, she managed to climb that one. I mean, she, you know, because the two things she said when she became prime minister was, firstly, she was going to deal with Brexit. Obviously, that hasn't happened. It's a massive burning skip. And the other was what she called was the burning injustices. She was, she was really passionate about that when she became prime minister. And those injustices are certainly burning because she uh, proceeded to pour petrol on them. Um, 
And I just think, you know, we shouldn't be... This idea we should cry over powerful people who will spend the rest of their lives in comfort, uh, in affluence. They will never want for anything uh, rather than the victims of their policies whose lives have been ruined and people whose families have been ripped apart. You know, is that is it humanity to just cry for powerful politicians rather than for the victims of their policies? And I, I, it, the British media sometimes—I've worked there for nearly a decade—it's such a farce. It's it's like a soap opera. It doesn't talk about things in broader context. It's all who's up, who's down. So when a you know a politician resigns and a lot of journalists have got to know them well and maybe they've gone on holiday together or they've got <laughs> drunk with each other and and then they're like, oh, this is so terrible. Is there a personal tragedy? It isn't. Uh, you know. A prime minister no longer, you know, the fact she can no longer be the most powerful person of the country because she's caused an absolute disaster uh, is not something to feel sorry for her for. Yeah. Well, a lot of people might remember the interesting circumstances of which she took the prime ministership. I'll just recap for those in Australia who aren't as um, into British politics as perhaps you or I are. But uh, we saw David Cameron, of course, announce the referendum on Brexit and whether Britain would leave the EU or not. Oops. Yep. (laughs) Massive blunder in history. And then we saw the pro-leave, the people like Nigel Farage, who was leader of the UKIP party, Boris Johnson, who led the leave campaign with a number of others, step back and say, whoa, okay, well, we've reached our aim. We got the majority to vote leave. Now I'm going to commentate from the sidelines or and or get a cushy job out of it for Boris um, becoming foreign affairs minister very briefly. And then Theresa May, of course, one of the people or many people who voted Remain was the one to then step in. Why do you think that there are so many of those people who are pushing so hard to leave who suddenly just go, oh, well, I'll let someone else deal with all the mess that we've just created? Well, I, I mean, I, I damn all of them on this count. I mean, yeah. I damn David Cameron because he called a referendum not because he thought it was the right thing for the country. It's because he had right-wing backbenchers and the rise of UKIP led by Nigel Farage biting his heels and he thought the way to kind of to neutralize those forces was to do what they'd asked which is to have a referendum uh which was obviously a colossal error because it led to uh, their dreams being realized and also them taking over the conservative party um and uh, so he called a disa- a referendum he he ran it disastrously and 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 then destroyed his his own political career um the, the people who ran the campaign didn't expect they were going to win. They didn't think they were going to win. Uh, that's certainly the case. And I think Boris Johnson, who notoriously, he, he works for the Telegraph newspaper, uh, paid a huge amount of money by the Telegraph uh, for, for the columns he writes. And he wrote, on the same day, one column supporting leave and one column supporting remain and submitted the leave. I mean, it just tells you That's what crazy. we're dealing with this guy. I mean, it's just a farce. And, uh, and I, I, you know, what happened then was uh, there was a conservative uh, leadership race and uh, Boris Johnson was standing to be leader, but he was betrayed by his fellow leave campaign conservative politician, Michael Gove, who said he wasn't up for being prime minister. Uh, and then he launched his own leadership campaign, forced Boris Johnson out, and then his own leadership campaign fell flat. So in a sense, it wasn't that they abandoned it. It's just yeah. that they, 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 they fell flat on their face. And there was a leave 
uh, a, a candidate called Andrea Ledsom, who was one of the Brexiteers who uh, kind of came to prominence during the campaign. Uh, but she made disastrous comments. So in the end, her leadership campaign collapsed and Theresa May took over. But what I'd say is, I mean, what, what Theresa May did, I mean, and, and this is why, again, I can't emphasise how little empathy we should have for, for her. Uh, because yes, it's true, she did support Remain, though she was very quiet during the referendum. She didn't really do any big interventions in support of Remain. But then what she did is she had this mantra that no deal was better than a bad deal. Now, no deal is a disaster if it happens for Britain, which it may well now happen. Mm. So she basically kept doing what David Cameron had done before her, which is constantly feeding more uh, red meat to her right-wing backbenchers, hoping that would satisfy them, but it didn't. They got fatter and hungrier. And she appointed Boris Johnson as foreign secretary, which, you know, he reduced Britain to a laughing stock. It antagonised and angered EU states because he's such a risable uh, figure. Um, and he intentionally made inflammatory comments and put other Brexiteers into key Brexit positions as well. And, and then what she did is she set these red lines in negotiations, which were just completely impossible. She made lots of demagogic speeches about the European Union, which just annoyed them even more. And then what happened was she, you know, Philip Hammond, her, shadow, her chancellor of the Exchequer, the finance guy, uh, he said, well, if the EU don't give us what we want, we're going to undercut them, you know, uh, you know, in terms of taxes and the welfare state and all the rest of it. So the EU, by this point, just regarded this as, you know, that Britain was actually there to be a rival. It was there uh, to be a hostile uh, force rather than you know a kind of friendly partner mm. um, and then what happened is Theresa May came back with a bad deal and then having said no deal is better than a bad deal she then told everyone to accept her bad deal but she'd already fueled the idea of no deal being a viable and potentially uh, positive outcome mm. um, and so all she did is raise expectations of the Brexiteers antagonise Remainers and Remainers were called on the front pages of Tory newspapers uh, things like traitors saboteurs judges who called uh, who ruled there should be parliamentary scrutiny were called enemies of the people you know completely yeah. ridiculous rhetoric so you ended up with Remainers increasingly just going rather than feeling look we voted we didn't want this to happen but we got to make it work because we lost the referendum more and more going this is just an absolute joke why should i go along with this and leavers who'd been told by the prime minister that no deal was better than a bad deal been given a bad deal and they went well no we didn't vote for this and we were promised by the prime minister we wouldn't get this so she was the architect of her own downfall mm. you know just because she you know some would it's easy to go well she didn't vote for it and she got landed with it uh, but she made a complete hash up of the entire process. So all of them need to be condemned. David yeah. Cameron, for why he called a referendum and how he managed the referendum. Uh, the Brexiteers who made impossible promises during the referendum, which could never, they said a, negotiating a deal would be the easiest thing in the world, that it you know Britain would get exactly what it wanted from the European Union. They didn't talk about any of the potential problems that we've had, like with the Irish border. Um, so and, and then they helped afterwards, like Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary, make an absolute... Uh, you know, antagonise the EU and Theresa May for the reasons I've said. So they, they, all of them are people who have led Britain to the precipice of an absolute national disaster. Mm. What was surprising coming from a very far place of Australia and looking on was 
particularly around the fact that Theresa May didn't seem to want to include others in the negotiation who are actually part of the United Kingdom, like Scotland uh, or even Northern Ireland in some way. I know it's a very complicated relationship with some of the more right-wing elements of Northern Ireland. But, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon um, has criticised Theresa May a great deal publicly on Twitter and, you know, on the front page of many newspapers. What do you think about Theresa May and those uh, criticisms of her being um, very single-minded in pursuing uh, really a Tory negotiation rather than a United Kingdom negotiation where she should have been perhaps trying to bring multiple parties in so that you could end up having a consensus at the end. Yeah, I mean, the irony is the Conservative Party's full title is the Conservative and Unionist Party. And by Unionist in Britain, we mean the union with Scotland and with the uh, Northern Ireland. Mm. I say that's someone who supports a united Ireland, but Northern Ireland was six provinces which were gerrymandered a uh, hundred years ago to keep a Protestant majority of that area of Ireland in the United Kingdom. And, and what happened in the, in the referendum is Scotland voted to remain and so did Northern Ireland. Uh, England and Wales both voted to leave. But Wales and Scotland have their own administrations with devolved powers. Uh, Northern Ireland should do, but uh, as a consequence of the Northern Ireland peace process, you get power sharing with parties representing both the Catholic minority and the Protestant majority. Um, and tragically, the Democratic Unionist Party, uh, who are an extremely right-wing, hard-right political force, profoundly homophobic, anti-abortion, uh, you know, kind of po- the political representatives of the 18th century. Um, and they're the dominant force within the unionist community of the North, the uh, Protestant majority. Uh, and they supported Brexit, even though most people in Northern Ireland voted against. Mm-hmm. But what happened after the election of 2017, which Theresa May disastrously called and then lost the majority, is the Conservative Party became dependent on the support of the Democratic Unionist Party to pass any legislation, and I should say they haven't passed any legislation pretty much in the last two and a half years, but their government was dependent on that party to stay in power because under our system like your own, you have to have uh, a majority of MPs with confidence in the government in order to fit to stay in power. Mm. So you've ended up in a position where even though Northern Ireland voted to remain, she's dependent on a Brexiteer party, but what complicates it is... One of the key pillars of the Northern Ireland peace process, which ended decades of the troubles in which thousands of people died, uh, terrible violence, um, is that there is, in practice, no border, no hard border between the north of Ireland and the Republic. And that's important because before that, it was a militarised zone. And for those who are members of the Catholic minority, uh, who all who have Irish passports, incidentally... That may, you know, even though they didn't have a united island, the fact they can have frictionless movement is 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 absolutely essential to the entire peace process. But the problem with Brexit is, if the United Kingdom leaves the European Union, which means leaving the single market, which has, uh, which is where you have frictionless movement of goods, uh, and 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 people and and services. And you leave the customs union, which is where you have a common trade area with a, with a, a common external tariff and, and instead negotiate trade deals with different countries, then both the, the customs and the tariffs of the republic and the standards and all the rest that come with being part of a, sing, of a single market will be different in the north and in the south. 
But if you've got frictionless movement because you've got an open border with lorries and all the rest coming in, when there's completely different tariffs and customs and standards, then you have to have a hard border. But that's completely unacceptable to the peace process. So another way of doing it is you have in the Irish Sea, which separates Britain and the island of Ireland, you instead have a barrier there and Northern Ireland keeps the same tariffs and 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 standards as the European Union but then it's basically left the United Kingdom and that's unacceptable to the Democratic Unionist Party because they exist to keep the union so you've ended up with that's why that's one of the, the key reasons for this whole crisis is you cannot resolve mm. Brexit and leave the single market and the customs union and protect the Irish peace process and that has caused a massive internal constitutional crisis whilst with Scotland where there was a, 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 an independence referendum five years ago, which was only narrowly relatively lost. It was about 55% against 45% for. At the beginning, only 28% of people in the polls supported independence. It was a big surge. There, most people voted remain. And they were told in the independence referendum, uh, one of the main reasons was, if you leave the UK, you'll be kicked out of the European Union. The only way of keeping your, guaranteeing your place in the EU is to vote to stay in. Then two years later, they get kicked out of the European Union because of something they didn't want to happen. So the, the, the Scottish government haven't been involved. They Obviously, it's a pro-independence government, but they mm. remain within the United Kingdom. But they haven't been involved, and they supported at the beginning staying in the single market and the customs union against Theresa May's position. And the, the, the irony, as I said, with the Conservative and Unionist Party is they've undermined the union so dramatically because they've basically helped to destabilise the North. Polling shows if there's a no-deal happen, there could be a majority in the North of Ireland supporting reunification. And it also is bolstering support for independence in Scotland as well. And a poll of Conservative Party members showed that a majority of those members, if it meant these things had to happen if, if it, to, to secure Brexit, would allow... Irish reunification, Scottish independence, significant damage to the economy, plus the destruction of their own party as long as Brexit happens. And, and that just shows how the Conservatives, their membership, have completely radicalised. So all of that has made a Brexit deal completely impossible because mm. it's not consistent with the Irish peace process. Um, it's fueled Scottish a sense of anger and grievance at the same time. And the membership of the Conservative Party will not tolerate any compromise whatsoever that would be needed to put, if we were going to have Brexit and also keep the, the peace process in place. Yeah. So that's thank you for explaining Sorry, that. Sorry, that was a, a bit great long-winded. Way. No. But it's very complicated, as I, I say, it's a mess. You've just shown, I think, how there are so many other unintended consequences of Brexit. Whoops. Yeah, which I would have thought people might have thought about. It was just not discussed in a referendum. Yeah. It was all just, it was brushed away. It was called Project Fear, you see. And it, the anti-Brexit argument was always called Project Fear. Therefore, it was dismissed as scaremongering. Mm. And... So basically, I mean, that remains the problem now. If you, if we talk now about no deal in Britain, which is Britain leaving, it's a fat, it's a complete lying deception. What would happen is Britain would leave without a deal, which is what most Leave voters want. What the the, the new Brexit party led by Nigel Farage, who used to lead uh, UKIP, as you say, that's what they're demanding. It's what most Tory members demand, and it's what. Uh, Boris Johnson said he will he will countenance if he doesn't get a renegotiation, which is impossible because mm. the EU have said there's no more negotiations to be had. Um, 
And no deal means Britain would leave with no relationship with the European Union, its biggest trade partner, quite literally just a few miles off its coast. Um, and, and so we would have massive economic damage, but we'd have to negotiate a trade deal with the European Union. You can't, it's just absurd. We'd ha we have to do that. But the European Union would say, we're not having any trade deal with you unless you pay your £39 billion divorce bill, which is to pay back what we are required to pay uh, as a leaving member, and also deal with the border in Ireland. So mm. we would just be going back cap in hand with our economy in a mess, with us in international kind of, you know, you think we're laughing stock now. Uh, wait, wait to see what happens if we leave the European Union without a deal. And then we go back to the European Union in a massively weakened state, begging basically from, a, from, a, uh, from an even weaker position for some sort of trade deal with them. So it is basically, the whole thing is an absolute epic, unbelievable mess. And sometimes I just sit thinking oh my you know i was at a, i went to a brexit party rally as a journalist and it was a horrible atmosphere a few weeks ago they were not happy to see me i can tell you that for nothing <laughs> but uh and i just stuck there and just thought we are stuck in this for years this is not going anywhere you know a genie came out of a of of, of the lap which is not go, it's not going back in and and the country's turmoil and it is definitely turmoil is only going to get worse and the danger is the polarization that's taken place because it's become a culture war it's not it's not really in lots of ways about the open union it's become about identity and that polarization is causing a schism which is very very difficult to bridge and is causing havoc in british politics mm. when you lay it out and show i guess the pragmatic considerations of hopefully avoiding a no deal then you talk about Boris Johnson and the very hard right of the Tory party insisting almost on a no deal and that we may not even pay our bills and those kind of really uh, empty threats. Is it ideology? Like what is driving such a dogged, unpragmatic, anti-conservative, because it really is almost anti what conservative should stand for, which is to be um, financially conservative. I mean, if you think about the economy and what would happen with a no deal, it would be an absolute disaster. And clearly your economy already isn't doing that well. Why is it that there are these hard right Tories that have like really taken over the conservative movement? It's a really, really good question, you know, because I mean, there are some who say, and you're not saying this, who say, um, oh, the Conservatives have suddenly become unconservative in the sense they're really ideological and Conservatives don't like ideology. And that, that bit isn't true no. because Thatcher, you know, who was Prime Minister from 79 onwards, was extremely ideological. But she was ideological in a way that suited the social base of the Conservatives who are big business and, 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 uh, and affluent sections of British society. And so she redistributed wealth and power in their direction. But this is different. This is unconservative in the sense you're talking about because of the fact that the kind of right-wing populist movement which has taken over the Conservatives, it's kind of detaching them from their social base, which is business, big business, because big business are staring at this in generally in kind of what on earth is going on here it's not helpful i mean a no deal would be terrible for the for, for the people who fund the conservatives who are generally the, you know the city of london the financial sector and big business you know they benefit sure from the tories doing things like cutting their corporation tax and hammering trade unions and deregulation and privatization they like all that kind of stuff but they're looking at this and going this is this is madness you know this isn't this goes against our our economic interests mm. and it is a bizarre 
phenomenon of how the rise of right-wing populism has has dragged away the conservatives from that 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 anchoring in in big business um you know right-wing populism is on is is not a, a british specific phenomenon obviously it's in america as well uh and we've seen it in lots of different forms across continental europe we've seen it of course in brazil most most strikingly recently with the rise of bolsonaro so you know you've got to join the dots there i, I and i think um you know, Brexit sometimes is portrayed as a working class revolt in a very misleading fashion because a majority of working class people under 35 voted to remain, a majority of middle class people over 65 voted to leave, most urban working class communities voted to remain, like in the big cities like Manchester mm. uh, and London, Liverpool um, and Scotland as well, Scottish working class people, so many of them voted to remain. Um, and equally, if you're, you know, black and minority ethnic working class people vote to remain in, in very significant numbers. But the, there was obviously others who are in ex-industrial areas where life has become very, very tough and hard uh, and their sense of community has been ripped away um, and they feel very angry and disillusioned and left behind. And Brexit for them was, you know, it was the referendum was, do you feel happy with the status quo? Do you feel happy with your life? And they answered no in large numbers. So, that, you know, there's lots of different reasons people vote that way. But what I find puzzling partly about the right-wing populist takeover is it's understandable when you get, you know, people from backgrounds which are very difficult, which they have become increasingly so for so many people in Britain, uh, to see Brexit as a means of, you know, that, that slogan in the referendum, the Leave campaign was take back control. And for people who felt their sense of control over their lives had been taken away from them, that really resonated with them. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the fact that so many of these people we're talking about are affluent middle-class people. So in the Conservative Party, that poll I said of, of, of most Conservative Party members said that they would be happy with significant damage to the British economy if it meant Brexit happening. What, what they mean by that is damage to other people because... Most Conservative members, and it's a very small membership, um, are affluent, they're white, and they're generally retired. So, you know, they've bought their own homes. So the kind of economic shock Britain would suffer, would it hit their grandkids? But it's not, it's not going to hurt them. And, and I find that puzzling. What is driving the radicalisation of often very affluent white middle-class people in the way that we've seen in 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 britain uh because it's one thing with ukip which had a certainly a substantial working class support but the conservative party is a middle class upper middle class party and they've still become overwhelmed with that kind of right-wing populism so i think i i i think someone needs to do a degree a phd in this i think the research, <laughs> what yeah. is what is making them so angry and i think a lot of it is um i think partly because of the struggles of women, of black and minority ethnic people, of LGBTQ people, a lot of them feel that uh, their own sense of identity was being challenged and taken away from them. Multiculturalism, immigration, the, the way feminism won rights for women. And you get, mm. I think, that sense of, of backlash where, I mean, as, as, that, as the expression goes, if you're... If, you, if you're used to privilege, then equality feels like oppression. And I think for lots of the, the, the rather than the working class constituency for Brexit, the middle class constituency, I think a lot of it is that. It's, it's, it's 
but it's a sense of, and we saw that in the aftermath of the referendum, it was almost like, you PC lefties, you've had your party, it's over, now we're taking over. It felt like a counter-revolution, a cultural counter-revolution, mm. um, that the values, which people often associate with London, that, that you know, we're taking it back now, you know, and and... I, 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 that's why it's become a culture war. And I think that is partly driving this right-wing populism. Mm. Just when you're talking about culture, it reminds me of um, some of your descriptions of culture being tied to class in Britain and class being still a very much a massive issue that a lot of people have tried to say isn't and that, um, you know, most of us are middle class now. It's only a small minority who's working class. As you've um, written in Chavs a number of years ago, you were saying that, you know, these working class people, you can blame their own misfortunes on themselves, the social inequalities that we're experiencing. Where do you think uh, Britain is at now in terms of class being uh, an issue that might be front of centre? Is it something that is confronted um, and, and named or is it still something that is kind of pushed to the back? So that has dramatically changed since I wrote that first book in mm. 2011. When I wrote that book in 2011, it was a, an attempt to confront what, what you've just described there, which I grew up with. Uh, you know, hearing about the 90s ad infinitum, which was, we're all middle class now. Class isn't really a thing. You know, Margaret Thatcher once said class is a communist concept. It puts people into bundles and sets them against each other. And Thatcherism tried to erase class as a concept. It, um, uh, it, uh, there was a Conservative Party document in the late 70s saying the problem is not class, it's class feeling. Uh, because they thought, yeah, correctly actually, that class... Uh, instilled a sense of collectivism, instilled a sense of uh, the interests of working class people are not just different from those at the top, they're on a conflict. Uh, it, so it brought about the sense of organised struggle. Mm. Um, and it was also this sense that injustice was caused by the system and and therefore needed a collective response to deal with it. And what Thatcherism tried to do is make people feel that they were just individuals um, and that, that, you know, you pull yourself up by your bootstrap to, as, as, as Barack Obama once amended that with, uh, even if you don't have any boots. Uh, but it was that sense of basically what were seen as social injustices were actually individual failings. If you were poor or unemployed, that was your own fault. You're lazy, you're feckless, you don't try hard enough. And, and that was very convenient because it rationalised and justified growing inequality, which exploded during the 1980s, because it was, look, these people who are getting richer and richer and richer, they deserve that. They're better. Mm. You, you, they are the best. They're go-getters. They're intelligent. They're, you know, and, and those the growing numbers of poverty, of people in poverty, well, that's their own fault, isn't it? Look at these people. And they, they're increasingly demonised, you know, and even TV comedy would ridicule people from poorer backgrounds in that, in that way. Um, so it became that sense of everyone's kind of made it to the middle class apart from the failures in society who just, you know, they're on these sink estates and so on. And the reason I wrote that book was to confront it. And the reason that book was a bestseller in Britain, I would say, is because even by 2011, there had been a shift. There was an appetite to talk about class again because of the financial crash, which hit Britain very badly. Um, and we got a conservative government in the aftermath coming to power people from very privileged backgrounds introducing policies austerity that hit people from poorer backgrounds so raising class didn't make much sense to people anymore but one thing i warned about in that book which i wrote in 2010 so a year before it was published um was the danger was that because new labor 
which and Labour was supposed to be the party of the working class, yeah. had stopped talking about class. The danger was a savvy right-wing populist movement could come along and start talking about class, talk about how the working class is demonised. But it's by these lefties uh, in London uh, who who uh, who and, and that you know and, and talk about multiculturalism attacking the working class and immigration attacking the working class uh, because of these middle-class lefty do-gooders in in London. And that is what happened. Mm. And now. Everyone talks about class. I, I don't really think, you know, that whole everyone's middle class thing is not a thing in Britain anymore. Conservatives, UKIP embraced it. Conservatives embraced it. Theresa May, uh, when she, you know became leader, kept talking about working the working class, working class people. Mm. And that was a real dramatic shift. And I think, it, you know, that was the danger that right-wing populism would appropriate, take away the, the language of class. But instead of saying it's about economic conflict to reframe it as cultural conflict, the values and culture of the working class, which were defined basically as whiteness um, and, uh, you know, that sense of identity were being attacked rather than the economic interests of the working class, the lack of secure jobs, the lack of affordable housing, uh, the fact the rich would, you know, treat, treat the country like a playground where they could get away with anything. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting, isn't it, that things have shifted so much. And um, I did, I have been following, I guess, some of the bigger thinkers on this. Obviously, you're one of them, but also um, the, I think it's the Institute for Public Policy Research and how they've also kind of shifted their research or focus. And you've written about that as well, I know, in your columns. And I was interested in also that shift now going on on the left and the Labor Party, of course, as well, needing to shift and change. Now we have Jeremy Corbyn, who himself is, you know, quite radical um, in comparison to others. But, I mean, many other people would just say he's speaking common sense. What do you think about Jeremy Corbyn and his brand of Labor? Because um, the mainstream media over there, it seems like, has basically wants to jump on everything he says as being crazy or um, unpatriotic and un-British. Where do you think the left is at now? So New Labour was, uh, you know, basically... the. After World War II, uh, we had a Labour government led by Clement Attlee that instituted the welfare state, the National Health Service, higher tax on the rich, strong trade unions. And that became a new settlement, a consensus. So the Conservatives, even when they came to power, they didn't, they didn't get rid of it. They just basically mm. resigned themselves to it. And New Labour was the opposite of that. So then Thatcher eventually did come along in 1979 and she tore that consensus down. And then in the same way the Tories had accepted that, last consensus. Now, Labour under Tony Blair capitulated to Thatcherism, accepted its underlying tenets and set out to just humanise and tweak it. And um, Blue Labour was a, a separate thing. That came in the later stages of the uh, New Labour period. And, and actually, it was, uh, I, I, I would say, uh, a wrong-headed movement because what it was, it was socially conservative. It was basically trying to, it, you know, portrayed working class people. It talked about, the, you know, it was kind of 1950s, a white middle-aged man, and that was it. That's working yeah. class people. The manufacturing worker. Or, exactly. Yeah. And that's not, you know, there's been a massive shift in, in what it means to be working class because mm. from the dock to and factory and mine to the call centre, the supermarket, uh, the office and obviously many working class most working class people are women just because there's a majority of women in society obviously you've got uh, rising levels of black and minority ethnic working class people who often you know they they have class oppression but they also have 
races racism on top of that and they are uh, you know part of systemic racism is they're concentrated in often the lowest paid and most insecure uh, work um so i think you know blue labor was quite reactionary in that sense because it was it was basically socially conservative mm. and trying to put some economic intervention on top of that and the rise of the labor left and the left had really been smashed to pieces until 2015 and uh the labor party suffered a similar defeat as the australian labor party has just suffered in the sense that labor were expected to win and um whilst they had some good policies in isolation there was no narrative to bring it together there was no compelling story about you know most people wouldn't wouldn't know what that labor government would even do for them mm. uh, and they were defined by their opponents and i think that's very much what's just happened in australia but after that defeat there was a big fear amongst people like myself that the narrative would be labor lost because they were too left wing uh, they weren't uh, they weren't anti-immigration enough uh, they weren't uh, pro-austerity enough because that was seen as economic credibility they weren't anti-social security anti-welfare state enough and they were going to shift off to the right so jeremy corbyn stood actually mm. Uh, not because he thought he was going to win at the time. He It was to try and stop the other candidates hurtling off to the right on those issues. And he wanted to drag them to the left. Uh, and his victory was a, an overwhelming landslide victory, but it was it was not expected. And uh, that, you know, so it's been, what, three, three and a half years. And you're quite right. Labour is demonised and attacked by a mainstream media in Britain, which is vociferously right wing and... Uh, aggressively so, very ideological. They're political players in their own rights and our media has dominated our landscape by right-wing forces and even the, the rest of the press is, uh, well, th there's a small slither basically of the liberal centrist press. But so, you know, I, I, in, the, in the commentariat in Britain, I'm, I'm very isolated to say the least as one of the people who supports the political direction of, of the leadership of, of the of the Labour Party. And I see it again, as I've just described, as a... Uh, Clement Attlee's Labour after World War Two over to created a new consensus mm. and that was then ripped apart and replaced by another one by Thatcher. Corbyn's Labour for me would do the same thing as those two did. It would create a new political consensus. It would mean the end of whatever you want to call it, neoliberalism, market fundamentalism, of the market being dominant above all else, of profit coming before the needs and aspirations of the majority, as well as the planet, given the existential crisis looming. Uh, so it would seek to create a new society, a new economy. And what's fascinating now, and you mentioned the Institute for Public and Policy Research, who used to be basically a very timid, tepid new Labour think tank, and under the leadership of Tom Cabassi, who took over a while ago, has tried to be a hub for some of the new ideas that have a new radical Labour government would do. Mm. Uh, but there's also lots of other new think tanks emerging. One's called Commonwealth, one's called Autonomy. Uh, we've got lots of thinkers, including in Australia, who come to Australia with me at the moment, like Grace Blakely, a young economist whose book is coming out later this year. Um, and we've got lots of new thinkers. And, and instead of what the left used to do uh, was to be very on the defensive. We were defined by what we were against. And stop the cut, stop privatisation, stop the world I want to get off. But now we're going on the offensive. We're talking about how are we going to democratise the economy? You know, rather than going back to just uh, having utilities and services and industries run by bureaucrats, why not have them run by workers and service users and consumers? In terms of, auto you know, bringing back human autonomy, why, do why aren't we talking more about reducing the working week so we don't spend so much of our life subordinated to authority and not having control over our life, which is what often work is like for most people? Uh, you know, we're talking about how do we redistribute wealth and power? How do we 
tackle the climate emergency with a just transition in a way that doesn't make just make a more sustainable economy but a just economy where we don't you know the 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 burden isn't suffered by the poor for you know but actually their lives are improved mm. you know if we if you have good public transport and better public transport and clean air uh, and uh, and and you know uh, you you invest in new renewable energy you create good secure jobs for people that replace the old industrial ones so we're coming up now with new ideas and i think that's a very exciting process so for me you know corbin that the corbin project is 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 this ecosystem of uh, of people who've come in from grassroots campaigns, from peace to tax avoidance against austerity, the student movement, um, and and the climate movement. Uh, it's obviously within the parliamentary wing. It's within the mass membership, and it's also these new intellectuals, academics, economists who are saying, "What is this going to look like?" And and I think that's what's exciting. You can see the foundations of a new political consensus being laid by a radical Labour government that won't do what the last one did, which is just tweak a bit at the edges humanize it you know they did do good things i'm not saying they didn't from lgbt rights the minimum wage to public investment but they also did things like they extended privatization they didn't challenge the power of the city which then led to a terrible uh, crash which would didn't need to have been as severe as it was if labor had regulated the banks properly so i just think you know a rad this is we're talking about a new radical government which will create a new society. And that's what terrifies the Conservatives. They don't think this is right, another Labour government. They think this is a, a very different and, and from their perspective, scary government because it threatens to upturn everything that they believe in. That's really interesting and exciting. It sounds like there's a lot of different people involved now. Um, in terms of Jeremy Corbyn and the way that he's operating and trying to build support for this kind of new way of doing things. Do you think he's getting a positive response from his own party, from um, the rank and file, from others uh, in England who might traditionally be Labor voters? Because given that Corbyn lost the last election, I'm wondering what has shifted between those two two or so years. Well, uh, I mean, about the, the, so what happened when you talk about the 2017 election, mm. which is it's correct to say Labor didn't win that election. However, two years earlier, they suffered one of their worst ever defeats as a, uh, since they became a national party over 100 years ago. It was a catastrophic defeat where they lost Scotland, which is one of the heartlands one of the birthplaces of the Labour Party. All of the first Labour leaders were Scots. Um, uh, uh, so no one in 2015 thought the next election then was scheduled for 2020. Mm. He, nobody seriously thought Labour had any chance of winning in five years because it was so terrible. It was it, Labour only got 30% of the vote, but they lost Scotland. Um, and, and people you know, were, thought that was an existential crisis. Within two years, despite a very hostile press and media, uh, despite that terrible defeat, despite internal civil war raging within the Labour Party for those 18 months before the election, Labour's share of the vote went up from 30% to 40%, the biggest increase of any uh, of the Labour Party had, had had in vote share since 1945. It, it took away the Conservative majority. Labour actually won the same share of the vote as Tony Blair did in, in 2001 when Tony Blair won a landslide. It's just under our electoral system. What basically happened was because the Conservatives 
they in 2015 UKIP got a sizable vote and because of Theresa May's Brexit you know Brexit means Brexit and yeah. no deal is better than a bad deal she swept up the UKIP vote who then went to the Conservative Party so she, she, both Labour and the Conservatives basically won what Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair did but at the same time so you ended up with a hung parliament so it's not that you know to go it was it is an astonishing it was an astonishing turnaround in fortunes not least because if you look at labor sister parties in europe they are facing complete collapse labor was going the same way as them as 2015 bleeding support in completely different directions uh, to right-wing populists to uh, anti-austerity leftists, in our case, the Greens, and to civic nationalists, in our case, the Scottish National Party. And people looked at that, the defeat in 2015, and said, well, if we're losing support in every direction, what on earth is going to bring this back together? And, you know, in France, the socialists have been wiped out. In, in uh, you know, in Spain, their support massively collapsed. It's gone up partly because they've shifted to the left and they're now reliant on a more left-wing party. In Italy, again, absolute disaster. Uh, all across Europe, their sister, these sister parties have, have gone into meltdown. And one of the only exceptions is, is Britain, and that was nearly winning the election in 2017. The, the problem for Labour since, and, and remains all the way through, is Brexit, because that's a culture war, and people... Labour represents constituencies that voted very heavily for Remain and for Leave. And what's the problem with the last two years is because Remainers and Leavers have both got more and more angry uh, in their positions, it, it cuts across Labour's electoral coalition, and Labour had a position which I thought was correct of saying we lost the referendum, but it was pretty close. So we'll leave with a close relationship uh, in a way that doesn't damage our economy. And then we'll go back to talking about the things that really matter, poverty, housing, and so on. But because that middle ground on Brexit has shrunk so dramatically, where so few people are willing to compromise, that's made Labour's position increasingly untenable and also damaged them because people are, uh, who voted Remain are going to Remain parties and people who voted Leave are going to the Brexit party. So both the two parties are facing, the main parties, Conservative and Labour, face that crisis. So that's the challenge facing Labour now. Can it, and I think it has every chance of winning a majority, the Conservatives are in crisis, but it does depend on them being able to navigate this very tortured Brexit process, which has also damaged them quite badly. Mm, yeah, I'm going to have to let you go, but just finally, maybe we can have some closure, maybe. Um, in terms of Labour and where to from here for Jeremy Corbyn and for the way that they approach Brexit, which seems like the main political issue that will, as you say, be going on for years and years, what should they be looking at to do? Because there's been this discussion about, you know, a second referendum, a people's vote, all that kind of thing. Where do you think Labor is shifting or should shift? Well, I don't think they have a choice anymore. And they are shifting in that direction to support another referendum. Um, because, and you know, the, the attempt to create a compromise has really failed, you know, just because both sides have got so much angrier and because the government have bungled it. And now because Britain faces the prospect of no deal, which was never put to the British public in a referendum, it was never, ever discussed as anything that would even plausibly happen. Uh, we were told we'd easily get a, a, a deal. That I think Labour has just going to have to say, 
we've tried to make this work, but now we're going to have to go back to the people with a credible leave option on the ballot paper and the option of remain. And that is the direction they're heading in. But I have to say throughout all this, I think, you know, Corbyn has got completely unnecessary, well, often very politically motivated flack because some have used Brexit to retire an attack and undermine him. And I think actually his attempt to try and bring the country together, even as it becomes more divided, is commendable. And it's sad that it hasn't been able to succeed. But I think... What matters about Corbyn is the policies he stand for. He stands for, and that's to redistribute wealth and power away from those at the top to the majority of people in society, and create a new society that puts the interests of people ahead of profit, uh, and sat- deals with the housing crisis, deals with the lack of secure jobs, deals with the climate crisis. Those are the tests, and I think if he leads a government, it would be, I hope, a, a beacon to the rest of the world about, you know, another world is not only possible, but 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 another world is within our reach. Yeah, I hope for your sake, being a political writer, that something more optimistic does happen, just as you've described. We're taking the scenic route, but we'll get there. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Owen, so much for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you.